As you saw in the video and on the screen right now, we're continuing our series that we've been going through this summer called Road Trip. And what we're doing is we're following the movement of God's people um, from the very beginning of history recorded in Scripture until the very end of what we read in Revelation. How God's people were on the move. How he moved them from place to place. And um, uh, what we're going to see today is not so much the movement of God's people, but the movement of uh, a, a, an, an object that was identified as the dwelling place of God. So to, to tie us into where we've been, we started uh, Garden of Eden um, and Abraham after that located in the, the area we now know as Iraq in that area somewhere. His people moved into Canaan, which is where the land promised to Abraham would be established, that promised land. From Canaan, they end up in Egypt and actually end up in slavery there. And then from Egypt, they make their way back to Canaan to this promised land. It took about 40 years. And then last week, we saw the actual movement from the wilderness, that 40-year wandering into Canaan as they crossed the Jordan and, and how God moved them that direction. Today we're picking up about 400 years after the kingdom of God, um, this physical kingdom had been established in that land, a, a, a capital has been um, formed in a city called Jerusalem which still exists today and um, the, the people of God have actually established themselves so well that they have a kingdom that's ruled by a king. The first king was King Saul. If you read about him, he has some issues, some anger issues, and then following him is King David. Uh, and we're actually starting right at the beginning of David's tenure as the king over Israel. And the story we're going to read today is kind of on his, fir like his first day in office. This is what he wants to do. And he has this desire to move the Ark of the Covenant, which we talked about last week, uh, from where it had been housed to into Jerusalem. Now we got to backtrack a little bit to understand what's going on with the ark. And I want to show you this picture we showed you last week. Um, if you weren't here, this is not the actual ark of the covenant. This is from Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Which is probably pretty close, right? Um, but this actually gives us a really good representation of what um, scripture defines or describes the ark to have been looked like, to, to have looked like as it was created. So the, the ark had, um, God gave instructions when they left Egypt, went into the wilderness to build two things. One was a tabernacle, just a tent structure that they moved with them where they would worship God and have sacrifices. And then this chest. Um, and there were all the elements that they built to go into the temple. But these two things had great, extremely great meaning. So the tabernacle was the place of worship. But the ark, the ark of the covenant, of this promise of God to redeem his people and create a nation that would enjoy life with him, um, traveled around with them as well as the tabernacle. And whenever they would stop, tabernacle would go up. Ark of the Covenant would be placed in the middle in a place called the Holy of Holies. And God's presence would meet with his people there. This was the residing place of God's presence. In fact, the very top of that picture, um, where, the, yeah, where the angels are, where the cherubim are, their, their wings would touch each other. And that top portion was called the mercy seat. That's where the, the blood of sacrifice was sprinkled for the atonement of sin. And that's where God's presence would reside. So, 
Through a series of events, as Israel was establishing themselves in the promised land, they still had battles that they had to win. And, and public enemy number one for them were the Philistines. And there was a battle they had where the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and they took it, the Philistines did, and put it in a temple they had to one of their gods. And you may know the story, if not, basically what happened, they, they put this Ark of the Covenant in this temple that was built for other gods. And when they would come in the next morning, all the idols and the statues of that god were laying on the ground, right? Had fallen during the night. And so the Philistines eventually said, hey, this god is set against us. And they gave it back like a gift. And they gave it back, but it went to kind of the, a border town and stayed in a person's house named, uh, which we'll see in a, in a second, um, Abinadab stayed in his house and it was there for, for quite a while. Um, but then David decided, you know what? This ark has not been in Jerusalem. We haven't been able to inquire of the Lord or be around his presence because it's in this other guy's house. And this other guy and all his family, they're being blessed beyond measure. We really need to bring this ark into Jerusalem at the heart of our nation and be able to inquire of God. So this is the story we're picking up with uh, this morning. And we're going to see a lot of emotion in this story. Everything from happiness and joy to anger and fear and a lot of confusion and heartache. So as we travel through that, hopefully we get a sense of what's happening. Um, but the bookends are celebration. The bookends of this story are immense celebration. Um, a, all centered around God's presence being restored to his people or his people being restored back into his presence. And they're celebrating this with great joy. Um, a, a theme we're going to see as well, which I know all of you woke up this morning and thought, I really hope to hear a sermon about fearing God. Um, that's what we're going to talk about. It can be a heavy, deep to topic. Um, track with me because it really ends up in some amazing truth. Um, to give you a little understanding of this idea of the fear of the Lord, before we jump into it, um, some of you may think when you hear that idea, the fear of the Lord, you may think, oh, I live in that all the time because I'm always worried that if I do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, forget to say the right thing or do the right thing, God's just going to zap me down, right? He's just going to take me out. So I want to make sure everything's in place and everything's just right. That's not the fear of the Lord. Um, the fear of the Lord is when we understand the significance of who God is and we recognize him rightly. We're going to be talking about words like reverence and irreverence today. We don't use that a lot in our vocabulary. Um, to give us a working definition when we get to that word, irreverence just means to um, react rashly to something or someone. And reverence then is to react rightly, right? To revere somebody's authority or the, the power that they have. We, we admire them, we adore them, we honor them to the level they should be honored. And that plays into having a fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord is revering him correctly. So what, what we're going to see is in a celebration at the beginning of this story, the fear of the Lord wasn't really present. But in a celebration at the end, it was. And we're going to see what happened in that transition. Let's pray, and we'll jump into the text. Father, thank you for who you are. God, we have sung about your, your awesome power already this morning. You bring dead things to life. God, you, you bring victory to your people. Lord, you are a God that 
works now as you worked in what we're going to read about in this scripture. Lord, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us this morning as a communal family here at the bridge. So, God, we're open. We're your people. Would you speak to us? Help us to listen with fear and reverence to what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 6. We're going to go through the first 15 verses and we'll just stop different places along the way. What I want us to consider is how, based on who God is, how should we rightly approach him and the instructions that he gives to his people. Verse 1, David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000 of them. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal, Judah. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. That's what we were just talking about. And this idea of the capital N name bears the name literally defines that as his dwelling place. So if you were living at this time and you had a little house somewhere, that house would bear your name, meaning that's where you dwelt. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, where it had been for at least 20 years, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, or Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart, and they brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel, these 30,000 plus people in the army and everybody that was there, they were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. Let's pause right there for a second. So they're getting this ark and they have pulled together. David has brought together the most amazing, elaborate, festive celebration he could think of, which would be fitting for this event, right? It is God's ark where he dwelt with his people. And this is now being re- returned and set in the middle of the nation so they could benefit from its presence. Remember, it benefited the house of Abinadab while it was there. And I'm sure Abinadab was like, you sure you want to take this back? Um, but he did. And they grabbed it and they, they were carrying it back in this amazing celebration. 30,000 of the best looking, most fit men in Israel. If you just want to try to imagine that, think of me multiplied by 30,000, and then take the opposite. And that's exactly what that would have looked like. Huge crowd, best people, best singers, best dancers, best musicians, all of this together. They wanted to do it with excellence, which is very similar to when we think about Sunday mornings, what we want to do. We want this to be done with excellence. We want to have great communication, great music, great environment, all these things because God deserves our best. He deserves our best. And that's what David was thinking about. So they even got a brand new cart, probably pulled by the most powerful oxen out there. And they had these men surrounding it. And they were going to carry it back to Jerusalem, celebrating the entire way. Then let's pick up right after that, verse 6. So imagine that celebration going on. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor... Uzzah, sorry about all the weird names, I didn't write it. Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. All right, pause. A little mishap on their trip. 
right? They're, they're moving it down the hill. They've got it on a cart. And oxen begins to stumble. And Uzzah is thinking probably, okay, this ark might tumble. It is where God lives. It's his dwelling place. It's where he resides with his people. It's important. It's valuable. I don't want anything wrong to happen to the ark. So he does what any of us in that moment with good intentions would have done. Reach out and grab it and try to hold it steady. And that's what he does. Now, we need to understand something before we, need, we read the next verse. Or the next verse is really going to tick you off. First, First Chronicles chapter 13, 14, and 15 detail this story in much more detail than we're reading out of 2 Samuel 6. And in that story, we see David communicating in just a moment that the ark is supposed to be carried by the Levites, who are the priests. And it was supposed to be carried on poles only by the Levites because they've been consecrated for this duty. In fact, he knows that because God, when, they, when God gave the instructions that were detailed then in Exodus about how to build this thing, he said specifically about the kind of poles that were supposed to be attached to the ark through these rings, even saying it needs to be made of acacia wood. And then in Numbers, God gives instruction as well of only these people are to carry it and if anyone touches it, the penalty is death. So God had set this out. Here's, here's where I'm going to reside with you. Here's how you must carry it. And if you don't follow these instructions and do it different, you will die. Now, we might think, well, who's God to say that? I, he, he's God, right? We have this understanding that he is creator. He is sustainer. He is holy. He is righteous. Therefore, he gets to kind of call the shots in our life. Those of us who have walked with him for a long time understand that's not a burden, but a blessing. So this is the background. They're carrying this ark. One, it's in a cart, not even on the poles. Oxen stumbles. Uzzah reaches out and touches it. Verse 6, he took a hold of it. And then, I'm sorry, verse 7. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. And God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. Wow. Like that, I wish this said, and God was super pleased with Uzzah because he did a good thing to make sure it didn't get messed up. That's not God's response here. God's respo God responded in such a way that it communicates that what he says is the most important thing there. Most important thing there is. The instructions he gives even supersede our good intentions. That he has described and defined a way that we should live, and specifically in this story, the way the ark should be approached and handled. So he, his anger burned. It doesn't say he was just disappointed or frustrated. His anger burned because they touched this ark that his name was written on, that he dwelt on. He was not able to, we're not able to approach that and he touched it so he died. And he laid there next to the ark. And then as you, that very next verse says that David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named that place very creatively, outburst against Uzzah. As it is today. Now it would be in Hebrew sound a lot better to us. But it still says the same thing. So this story went from amazing celebration. To extreme tragedy. Like that. All because they did not follow God's instructions. And in how to transport this ark. And, and it doesn't sit well with our sense of justice. At all. And we don't have time to unpack all of that. But in this moment. 
it, let's, not get, let's not get tripped up on that. In this moment, we just need to understand God gets to call the shots because of who he is. And the reason he was angry at Uzzah is because of Uzzah's um, irreverence to God, right? We saw that word in scripture. So Uzzah, from God's point of view, acted rashly, inappropriately towards God's ark. That's why God was angry and that's why God punished him. And here's the first thing. If, if we're wanting to approach God and his instructions rightly, we need to first understand that it is dangerous to take God's instructions lightly. It just is. And I know that's not a fun thing to hear on the Sunday before the 4th because we're just ready to go blow stuff up. But just as it's dangerous, here's a great tie-in. I didn't even think of this. Just as it's dangerous not to read the instructions on the fireworks before you blow them up, it is dangerous not to take God's instructions seriously. That was super cheesy. I wish I had never said it. It's dangerous not to take God's instructions seriously or to take them lightly. And we see here clearly, here's an instruction. Here's what you do. Even with this whole celebration and production, that did not lessen God's anger. And it did not lessen his desire for individual reverence in that moment. Everyone else is doing some awesome stuff, but one person out of step with God's instructions cost him his life and destroyed the entire celebration. In fact, what we're going to find out next is that it didn't even move the ark that way. So let's, let's go on. Let's continue. They didn't even move it back to Jerusalem at this point. Let me catch back up with where we were. So verse 9. So at this moment, David feared the Lord that day and he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? I mean, that's a good response because he saw where even someone's good intention and just keeping it from crashing cost the guy his life. So how can we even live around this thing? How can it be in our presence? How can it be in our city? If this one act costs a life, it might destroy all of us. And if we have a right understanding of who God is, that, that is something we need to pick into a little bit. That we cannot just walk into God's presence on our own. We cannot come near him on our own terms. Scripture makes it very clear that we don't approach his presence, one, without him calling us. We see that even with Moses. God called him up onto the mountain, but still hid part of himself from Moses when he gave him the law. But we can't approach God outside of the work of Jesus in our life. We have to be given the full righteousness of Christ in order to have God's spirit in us. It required a death of another man, Jesus Christ, so that we could enjoy the presence of God. So this is pre-Jesus. It's a, it's a time of sacrifices. And, and David sees that there's probably no way this can dwell with us. So they leave the ark. Probably a... A moment of just extreme sadness and frustration and heartache. Verse 10. So David was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David, Jerusalem. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom. Here, Obed, why don't you hang on to this, right? Gives it to somebody else. The ark of the Lord remained in Obed's house three months. And guess what the Lord did? Blessed that family immensely, just like he did with Abinadab's family. Now, probably what's going on, we're going to have to read in just a little bit, but more than likely, those families were responding correctly to the ark. It just sat somewhere around their property, and they did not touch it. They revered it. 
and it blessed them immensely. So that's going on. It was reported to King David, verse 12, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David, let's try it again. It says, David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. So what's missing in 2 Samuel 6 is this whole discussion in, uh, in 2 Chronicles about how the ark was moved and the instructions for it. David was like, ah, oh, we messed up. The Levites have to carry it. They're the ones consecrated for it. And they got to do it by the poles. So they got the Levites together and sent them back with this, with this uh, part, the party of people to carry it back. And they did it the right way this time. They carried it correctly this time. But I love verse 13. It says, when those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, David sacrificed an ox and a fatted calf. I can just see this. There's just this hesitancy, right? We just saw God take a guy out because of his irreverence. We don't want to repeat that same mistake. So they take a few steps and, and David's just like, wait, 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 wait. Let's make sure we got it all right. And they stop right there and they sacrifice to the Lord to make sure everything is correct. It's kind of like when you're going on vacation and you've left your house and you've packed everything and everything's in the car, all your kids, all your supplies, all the stuff, and you get to the first stop sign. And if you're like us, you take inventory. Wait, did you get your chargers? Did you get your swimsuit? Did you get your medicine? Did you get this? Did you get that? We want to make sure we have everything we need for this trip so that it can be done right. And inevitably you get there and you forgot something, right? This is what David's doing. Let's make sure everything is where it needs to be. This fear of the Lord that David had that led them to respond this way. This reverence he had of God, of who he was, put David in a place where he wanted to follow to the T God's instructions. So while it's dangerous to take God's instructions lightly, when we have the fear of the Lord, it helps us to then view those instructions rightly. So if we take it, if we take it flippantly, oh, it's dangerous. But when we have a fear of the Lord, a healthy understanding of fear of who he is and his reverence and his power, it causes us to consider, well, what does he want? What does God want in my life? How am I to approach him? What does obedience look like for me? And in scripture, Jesus told us obedience to, to God the Father is to love him with all that we have and to love others as ourself. There's a lot of ways that looks for, for each of us, but are we considering those things in our life? Do we consider our love for God and our love for others when we get up in the morning, when we're dealing with people at work, when we're talking to our spouse or our kids? In our thought life, are we loving others and loving God? Even in our times of worship in this room, are we coming with the thought of, man, I want to love God with all that I have when I'm with his people, and I want to I love the person sitting next to me the way I love myself? To that extreme. They didn't consider that and it led to death. But when they did consider God's commands rightly and responded the right way, look what happens in verse 14. As they're coming in from that point into Jerusalem, David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of ram's horns. What we see at the end here is just kind of a carbon copy of what happened at the beginning, right? 
Great celebration, not done in line with what God wants, tragedy. At the end, great celebration, done the way God wants, yeah, joy, right? Jubilation. And what we see here at the end of this, and it goes on, his wife gets angry because he's kind of dancing with no pants on, and, and there's a whole thing there, you should read it. Um, but but what, we're, what we then begin to see here is that when we have a reverent fear of God, we are then freed to live joyfully. Let me tie those together. It's dangerous to view God's instructions lightly. When we fear him correctly, we view his instructions rightly. And then when we walk in the fear of God, we are freed to live joyfully. We see this so clearly with David here. I think this is one of those passages that we might just look past or we get so frustrated with what happened to Uzzah that we don't catch the other end. And the truth is understanding who God is, that's not a burden. Walking and living with, the, with, with right reverence towards God, submitting ourselves in, in, in humility, God gets to call the shots. He created me. He's in charge. I want to submit underneath that. A lot of times we think, I don't want that because I want to enjoy life. But if you have lived under that umbrella, there's so many of us in here that can give testimony to say, listen, understanding God is God and he knows what's best and following him, it's the best decision you can ever make. It leads to abundant blessing. Is it hard? Yes. Can it be painful? Yes. Will it cost you? Yes. But the result is joy and blessing. And that joy, it's not just happiness. The joy we get from the Lord is this settled conviction that God is in control. I heard it said once that happiness is the result of something great, where joy is the result of someone great. That God has worked and we know our eternity is secure. And because we can trust him then, we can trust him now. And he holds us in, our hand, in his hand. And instead of thinking, oh, I, I'm scared, to God, scared of God. And I'm scared I'm going to mess up. And he's just going to crush me. Living in obedience to the Lord, the joy that results there is, ah, I'm in his hand and he covers me. That's what David, that's why David could dance his pants off. Right? His, his heart was turned towards the Lord. This joy and jubilation. Can you imagine the excitement? Not just with him, but all these guys that knew three months earlier what happened to Uzzah. And now they finally show up in the city. Oh, it happened. We did it right. God's very presence is in our midst. And it got kind of crazy. In fact, with the, with the um, coming of AI... We've been able to kind of get an idea of what this may have looked or sounded like. Can we show that? Alton dance to the Indiana Jones theme song. It was an amazing time of celebration. I know that's silly, but here, here's what I want us to get. Because talking about the fear of the Lord can be such a heavy topic. It can be a hard topic. How do we get that right? Man, if I don't revere him correctly, I'm going to mess up and I'm going to be like Uzzah. Just as real as the fear of the Lord is in his holiness and his righteousness is his grace and his mercy. God desires that none perish. 
God doesn't want you to live in fear of your past or shame of things that you've done. He, he wants you now to, to walk in this joyous life. But it only comes when we first understand God is God. He created all things. He rules all things. He sustains all things by his breath. We take breath because of him. He gets to then lead us and call the shots. And listen, if, if you've taken that step into following Jesus and being a part of God's family, and now, and now because you're following Jesus, you want to be like Jesus, and you want to talk how he talked, and act how he acted, and think how he thought, and become like him, you know what you're doing? You're revering God. You're revering God's instructions to live the way he's created us to live. And what that does and should produce in us is not a paralyzing fear, but this freeing joy. To live with fun and happiness and good times, but also with contentment in the bad times. We can stop in the middle of a sermon and play a clip of Carlton dancing to, to Indiana Jones, and it's okay. And we laugh about it because we know God is good. And we can do these things, but we should also, when we read a text about a man dying because he simply touched the Ark of the Covenant, it should cause us to pause and reflect, and consider, and consecrate ourselves to God's usage, and then consider his ways, and then cooperate with that. So, two ways we need to consider this in the next two minutes. One, what does it mean for us personally? We all have, we do all have an individual relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, if you have committed your life to that. Some of you may not have done that. This is not for you. This is for the believers and the Jesus followers in the room. Personally, in your life, we, we need to continue to do this. Scripture tells us to work out our faith with fear and trembling. That idea of work out is moment by moment, day by day. We're just considering what does God want with reverence. What, is it, what does he want from, from us? And, and we're trying to work this out. So, so that's, that's where we are as believers. We want to walk this path rightly, understanding who God is, living by his law and commands. But then the other side of that is what does it mean communally for us as a body, for us as a church, a part of the larger church, but a local gathering of Jesus' people. When you read through the New Testament, you see all these commands. You do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. Just a way for churches to live rightly with each other. In the original language that those commands were written in, Hebrew and Greek, there were two words used to talk about you people. One was, one was a singular First person singular, one was a first person plural. Two different words. We in the English language have one word that, can, that, that says both first person singular and first person plural. It's the word you. Depends on the context. So when we read that in our American mind that's driven by individualism, we're going to read that and say, I got to do this. This is for me. This is for me. And it is. In the South... We use the word y'all, right? If, if we had translated it in a southern, we'd get it. Y'all do that. Oh, it's all for all of us. When this was written, when the Old New Testament was written, 90 to 95% of those commands were written to people, not individuals. So the way I live personally in my pursuit of God and in fear of the Lord and following his commands will affect the rest of us. The way you do that will affect, will affect the rest of us, both positively and negatively. 
And for us to come in on Sunday mornings and want to celebrate Jesus together with joy, it requires that all of us live with reverence throughout the week. And even on Sunday. And we come in as a body with this joy of the Lord, this contentment. It may not mean that you stand up and shake your, wave your hands or dance or whatever. It may mean that you come in very reflective because things have been hard and you just need to hear from the Lord. Whatever that is though, that's the right way we approach God corporately. And it's our prayer that we'll do that. It's our prayer that the way I live my life this week will allow you to worship with joy and freedom next Sunday. And I hope that's the prayer of each of us throughout this room. We do this together. Fear the Lord rightly. Live in response joyously. Let's pray the Lord. Let's pray the Lord. Father, we thank you for who you are, what you've done, for your blessings on our life through your son Jesus. Lord, a passage like this is difficult for us to take and understand. And, and even, God, even, even be at peace with just the way things laid out. But God, that's not for us to decide. It's up to us to learn about who you are, what you want, and then to live that out faithfully. God, I pray for my, my friends in the room who are not followers of Jesus. God, and they've heard this story. I pray that your justice is something that they respond to with all. Because you're good and you're always right. And, we, and that they'll see the end of this story that you brought joy and blessing into their life as they were obedient and that they might turn their life to you. And Father, I pray for my friends in this room that do follow Jesus, that as they're being reminded of who you are and your greatness and your goodness, God, overflowing in them would be this awe and wonder of who you are and then it would just affect how we live. And because you are awesome and good and all-powerful, they know they can live with joy. Because not only are they in your hands, but they're covered by your hands. So whatever our response looks like this morning, God, we just pray we're honest and you're pleased. In Jesus' name we pray.